This podcast contains graphic or mature material, depictions of murder, violence, mutilation, and graphic images are discussed in detail during this podcast. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back. We're the Cold Case Crew, and we're a group of friends who have gotten together to take a look at some of the oldest cold cases around to give new life and, perhaps, a new hope of resolution to a decades-old story that has sadly been silenced by time. My name is Whitney. It's Ashley. And I'm Beth. This week, we will be concluding our season one finale with part two of the WVU co-ed murders that took place in Morgantown in January 1970. This is a two-part series, so if you haven't given our first episode a listen, I highly suggest you go back and listen to it now before continuing on. In this episode, we will pick up where we left off. The bodies of Merritt and Karen had just been discovered on April 16, 1970, 88 days after their mysterious disappearance, with their heads decapitated and notably absent. We'll continue to cover the mysterious triangle letters, which had been sent taunting police with the location of the remains, and move on to possible suspects before discussing the trials of the man who was ultimately convicted of the murders, Eugene Paul Clausen. Ladies, are we ready to dive back in? Let's do it. Let's go. After the discovery of the bodies, the pressure began to ramp up for authorities to determine what became of the girls' heads. Perhaps therein lie the crucial piece to the puzzle, explaining... What exactly happened to Merritt and Karen? And how did they end up dead and beheaded in a remote area 10 miles outside of Morgantown? One thing was certain. The police were dealing with a maniac. All of the belongings of the girls, or clues if you will, were located recently within 5 mile radius of where the bodies were ultimately discovered. The items notably had not been weathered by the elements as they would have been assuming they had been discarded on or near January 18th. This led investigators to believe that the belongings had been planted more recently by the killer himself. See, I just wonder. I know that he probably placed some of them, but I wonder if they did some of that, throwing things out the window. One of the purses was waterlogged, so I'd say maybe something I don't know. like that could have been. I don't know. Governor Arch A. Moore put out a press conference after the discovery of the bodies, stating that he did not expect the state police to call in the assistance of the FBI with regards to the co-ed murders. He maintained that police were pursuing all aspects of the case from the viewpoint of the murdered girls. Almost as though in mockery, a third letter arrived from Triangle, again postmarked from Cumberland, Maryland, and was dated April 21st, five days after the discovery of the bodies. It read as follows. The heads can be found from the position of the bodies by striking out 10 degrees southwest for the first head and approximately 10 degrees southeast for the second, roughly one mile. You are already seven-tenths of that mile. They are within the mine entrance, if you can call it an entrance, considering its condition. They are buried not over one foot in depth. The ones responsible for the murders scattered some of the girls' personal effects over the general area, creating a pattern of confusion and making it difficult for you to pinpoint any exact location. My first two letters triggered your intensive search. Don't give up now. Sincerely, Triangle. So he's saying the ones responsible for the murders? Mm-hmm. But he's telling them where they're at. He's saying he's not responsible? Apparently. He's trying to throw them off. Crazy triangle. Since April 8th, 1970, the West Virginia State Police had enlisted the help of Lieutenant Charles West of WVCIB to decipher the author of the triangle letters were via handwriting analysis. He had started close to the investigation, studying persons such as Merritt and Karen's boyfriends, school friends, and so forth. At this current juncture, the author of these mysterious letters was the number one person of interest in the co-ed murders. But some close to the investigation were beginning to question the validity of Triangle. 
Remember, in his first letter, he claimed that the bodies would be found within 26 miles south of the city limits, when, in reality, the remains were discovered within 10 miles of Morgantown. They theorized that Triangle had less to do with the murder of Merritt and Karen and was more about garnering attention at the expense of the investigation. What a messed up person, if that's what the person Triangle was doing. Oh, we find out who they are. The bodies of Merritt and Karen were returned home to await burial. Karen Lynn Farrell was laid to rest on Thursday, April 23, 1970, with a private ceremony and burial, which followed at the Wallace Memorial Cemetery in Clintonville, West Virginia. A few days later, Merritt Ellen Mallorick was laid to rest Saturday, April 25th, in a private ceremony surrounded by friends and family. A memorial mass for the public was held the following Saturday, May 2nd, at Our Lady of the Magnificent Roman Catholic Church. A fourth and final letter was dated April 28, 1970, but unlike the others, this letter was mailed directly to Merritt's parents, Edward and Margaret Mallorick in New Jersey. This letter read as follows. I have sent three letters to the Morgantown State Police Department concerning your daughter, Merritt, and Karen. The first and second were taken with some seriousness and instituted a search, which was successful in locating two bodies minus the heads, which were needed for other purposes. All of a sudden, the police have been complaining about an error in the mileage stated in my second letter. As one has driven in an oval pattern for 26 miles under the weather conditions of January and under the involved circumstances, it is possible to make an 18-mile error with the precise location of the bodies. Nevertheless, they were found south of Morgantown, as stated in the letter, even to that which was called a logging lane or old mine road, In my opinion, both the same. So he was actually watching because he said after one has driven in an oval pattern for 26 miles under the weather condition of January. That just makes me wonder, was he watching? Was he... tracker on there maybe? I don't know. Well, there were no trackers I feel like he's insinuating that he's the person that did it and that he drove around in January when it's snowing and all the okay. roads kind of look the okay. same and it's easy to get confused. That's okay. kind of my take on it. But okay. In July, West was sent up to Cumberland, Maryland to attempt to identify the handwriting of Triangle compared to various voter registration cards they had on file. There were around 80,000 signatures to go through and in the middle of it, West had an idea. He took a copy of one of the Triangle letters and tossed it to the lieutenant from Cumberland PD asking, you ever read one of my letters? After a moment, he brings West a file folder full of loose leaf sheets of paper. West looked through each one before holding up a postcard from a file triumphantly. It was a match. According to Cumberland PD, the group in question called themselves the Students of Psychic Science and were described as a religious cult by the local authorities. Upon questioning, the group admitted to sending the letters regarding the co-eds. What was learned was that the group was headed up by Reverend Richard Warren Hoover and that in order to obtain the information about the co-ed's fate, they held an emotional seance. The triangle was a symbol of the Holy Trinity, but members of the group also had ties to the Freemasons. It was determined that the authors had no connection to the killings and furthermore, no legitimate information. That's weird. I mean, do you really think it's like a match and like that's where it came from or I feel that Triangle is so arrogant that if someone was posing as him he would have sent another letter I agree with that yes wholeheartedly I agree with that 
There are several factors that led to the case of the murdered co-eds growing cold over the years, the first of which came from the prompt firing of lead detective Preston Gooden. If you will remember from our past episodes, was also one of the lead investigators in the 1977 disappearance of Margie Dodd in Raleigh County. His firing came from after he publicly denounced the efforts, or lack thereof, of the West Virginia State Police to solve the co-ed murders. Publicly, West Virginia State Police made declarations of how much manpower and effort was going into the ongoing investigation. But in reality, the case had been placed on a back burner with minimal effort or follow-up taking place. Despite being fired, Gooden was ultimately reinstated several years later and moved down to Raleigh County. That was our good luck. Other contributing factors came from a lack of evidence, the inability of the West Virginia State Police to locate the heads of the missing co-eds, as well as a lack of plausible suspects. Sadly, Detective Gooden wouldn't be the only one to open up vocally about the efforts made by West Virginia State Police. Both families of Merritt and Karen have reportedly stated to members of the press their dissatisfaction with how their daughter's case had been handled. Bess Farrell is quoted, I'm unhappy with the way the police have just fooled around all these weeks. You just don't know how this has been. It's been terrible. I feel just like my hands and feet were tied. Which is devastating. Very it devastating. I would want so top-notch sad. investigating it's going so on here. Sad. There wouldn't be a break in the case for another six years when an inmate who was awaiting trial up in New Jersey confessed to the murders of Merritt and Karen. Eugene Paul Clausen was imprisoned in Camden County, New Jersey for multiple counts against a 13-year-old girl that had taken place years prior. In the weeks leading up to his confession on January 9, 1976, Clausen was said to have been plagued by nightmares of headless women. At the time, his cellmate was Felton Harp, a jailhouse lawyer of sorts, and it is to him that Clausen originally confessed, racked with guilt and desperate for atonement. In his confession to Harp, Clausen claimed he had picked up two females near a movie house in Morgantown and had subsequently taken them for a ride in his automobile and that he had some type of sexual relationships with the girls, after which he killed and beheaded the two students. I thought there wasn't any sexual stuff going on with them. Well, I don't think that their bodies had been Oh, gotcha. Officials in New Jersey contacted Morgantown City Police, informing them that they had a man in prison who they believed to be connected to the co-ed murders that took place in 1970. Officers traveled from West Virginia to the Camden County Jail, obtained a 35-page confession of the murders from Clawson, where he detailed how he murdered Merritt and Karen, and included where he discarded the heads. The following is a summarized version of his account. Clawson visited his mother in Point Marion, PA. He borrowed a car and drove nine miles to Morgantown, where he was just cruising around to find someone to pick up. He claimed that he liked to have abnormal sex and has to force people to participate with him. When I see someone hitchhiking, 
I shouldn't say this, but it excites me. And I get a hot feeling all over, and I don't know. I just can't control myself. I just know that I am going to do something. He noticed a couple of pretty girls on the street corner and offered them a ride. When he was out of sight of observers, he claimed to have threatened the girls with a gun and told them to lie on the floor of the car. I was speeding. I was taking LSD, smoking the reefer, didn't know how far he drove, but he pulled into a remote wooded section outside Morgantown. He put handcuffs on one girl and hooked her to the spring under the front seat, made the other girl crawl over the back seat and get undressed. He climbed into the back seat with her and had abnormal sex. They pleaded with me. That excited me more. I told them to shut their mouths and slapped one for talking. The blonde girl screamed. She said I hurt her, but I didn't believe her. I thought she was a pig. He claimed that after he had sex with the girls, he told them to get dressed again and to get out of the car and walk into the woods. He planned to let them go, but they excited him by begging. I went back to the car and got a machete. I shot one girl in the head and when she fell, she pulled the other one down. He shot the other girl, but the bullet just grazed her. He used the machete to cut off the head of the dead girl while her friend watched helplessly. The blood excited me. He later decapitated the second girl and dragged both bodies to a section of the woods where he covered them with rocks and logs. I took the heads back to the car and found a large, dirty rag and put their heads in it. I put the heads in the back seat and drove off. And returning to his mother's house, he stopped along the way, got into the back seat, and proceeded to have sex with the heads. He later disposed of the heads by throwing them in a crevice near Point Marion. I threw the gun first, then the heads. At his mother's house, he washed off the machete and returned it to his brother's house. He stashed the handcuffs and several pieces of the girl's jewelry in a vacant house nearby. What the hell? He's messed up. Oh my gosh. LSD does not make you kill people. As a part of his confession, Clawson was brought to the Pennsylvania-West Virginia border to meet with law enforcement, where he led them to an area outside Port Marion, PA, where a naturally occurring crevice was located. He indicated which crevice was the most likely to have been the one in which he disposed of the heads and a 38 gun back in 1970. Police were able to confirm that Clawson did have a brother who lived in Port Marion, a fact that corroborated details of his confession. For the next two weeks, authorities worked in tandem with mine inspectors to locate any evidence of the crime that might lay within the crevices walls. Due to the nature of the crevices composition, authorities ended up having to resort to the use of metal detectors and video cameras to access some of the more tighter areas that would not allow human access. But the stark reality was that the chances of anything remaining in the crevice was small. If the heads had, in fact, been dropped into the crevice, animals would most likely have dragged them away in the past six years since the murders took place. However, the search was not without any findings. Investigators were able to obtain 150 strands of human hair that had been retrieved from an animal's nest. These hairs, it would turn out, were from two different heads, one blonde and one dark-haired. 
positive identification was unable to be determined. However, as without the heads, authorities were unable to obtain a sample from which to compare the two. But have they tried now since like DNA is available? Like, is that just a coincidence to have? You can't test hair. It has to have the follicle attached. If it's just a hair, but it doesn't have the follicle, it's not going to provide anything. It has to have that follicle attached. As we move forward, you will learn that there are parts of Clausen's confession which continue to confound authorities and cast doubt on whether or not he did, in fact, carry out these murders. Other pieces of the confession pay tribute to hard facts of the case, but which is it? During his confession, Clausen explained that he used a machete, which he had borrowed from his brother's house, to sever the heads of the young co-eds. From a search of his brother's residence, police were able to obtain a rusted machete, which would corroborate Clausen's claims. Likewise, Clausen's claim that he stole a car in Pennsylvania prior to driving to Morgantown and abducting Merritt and Karen. This claim was also confirmed by authorities in Pennsylvania, where they had a record of a beige or white car, which matched the description of the one said to have picked up Merritt and Karen, that had been stolen and then abandoned during that time period. A lie detector test also revealed that Clausen was being truthful in his confession. Finally, Clausen had mentioned in his confession that he had taken some jewelry, including a locket, class ring, and chain that were notably missing from the girls, a detail that was not mentioned in the press. Other parts of his confession, however, just didn't seem to add up. According to Clausen, he had quit his job two weeks prior to the killings, but upon further investigation, Records showed that Eugene Paul Clausen had actually been at work on the day the girls disappeared. Clausen's timeline of events was also called into play, given the distance and amount of time it would take to commit the crime, could Clausen have feasibly even been able to commit the crimes? Under the right circumstances, it would appear that he could have, maybe, but many believe the actuality of Clausen being able to commit the crimes in that time frame was slim to none. It's a really tight time frame. When you add up the time it takes to drive to Point Marion, from Point Marion to Morgantown. So he's basically just crazy. I think there is absolutely no doubt that this man is crazy. Yeah. Whether or not he killed the girls, that's another thing. But is he crazy? Yes. When Clausen got wind of West Virginia authorities casting doubt on his confession, he mailed a letter which read as follows. I'm going to tell the guys that if they want to commit the perfect murder, all they have to do is go to West Virginia and kill someone. And if they dispose of the evidence properly, and if they have a buddy who works for the same place as him, who he can get to punch his time card for him a couple of days so he can take a small vacation, he can get away with it. He can even confess to prove he is guilty, and the West Virginia State Police won't even charge him with anything. P.S. I am smarter than the West Virginia State Police, even when I am tripping on LSD. Ha, ha, ha. God, further proof that the man is insane. Cray cray. 
Back in New Jersey in April 1976, Eugene Paul Clausen pled guilty to a nine-count indictment of sexual offenses against a minor. He was sentenced to a maximum of 15 years in prison. The same month, the Monongalia County Grand Jury officially indicted Clawson on two counts of murder in the first degree. His trial was ultimately set for October 1976, but first he was forced to undergo a mental competency test, which was scheduled for August. To everyone's surprise at the arraignment, Clawson recanted his previous two confessions and entered a plea of not guilty. According to Clausen, he only made the confession as a means to circumvent his conviction on the charges against him in New Jersey. It was his belief that if he confessed to the murders in West Virginia, New Jersey would drop the charges against him and extradite him to West Virginia. From there, his story would not stand up in court as he did not commit the murders and he would be let off. There is one important note about Clausen that came out of the trial. He suffered from a chromosomal defect that caused him to develop breasts as a young man. A normal male's chromosomes are XY. Clausen's were XXY, also known as Kleinfelder syndrome. A side effect from Kleinfelder's is small testicles, which Clausen was also known to have. He was also a victim of sexual incompetency and was unable to hold an erection. At trial, a jury made up of seven men and five women sat and listened as Eugene Paul Clausen took the stand in his own defense, presenting the above-mentioned facts about himself, as well as his alibi for the time of the murders. He was working at Weyerhaeuser Paper in Philadelphia. Clausen also claimed to have learned the details of the slaying from a 1973 edition of a detective magazine who ran a story called The Case of the Headless Coeds, which was based on the murders. Unfortunately for the defense, Clausen's confession, the hair located at the crevice, and the machete were all allowed to be presented as evidence. Interestingly enough, though, Three policemen who worked the case took the stand in defense of Clausen, expressing their doubts of his involvement. Specifically, Preston Gooden stated that per Clausen's confession, he made claims that he had drugged the girls' bodies to the burial site by their feet, when in reality, evidence proved that the girls had been drugged by their shoulders. He also noted that there were no clear indications of sexual assault, something that was confirmed by autopsy, but juxtaposed by the confession. Nevertheless, Eugene Paul Clausen was found guilty of first-degree murder without the hope of parole. He was returned to New Jersey to continue his prison sentence shortly after the completion of trial. But this wouldn't be the last we would hear of Eugene Paul Clausen or the question of his involvement in the WVU co-ed murders. Clausen maintained his innocence in connection with the murders and appealed to the Supreme Court of West Virginia to allow for another trial. In September 1980, the Supreme Court overturned Clausen's conviction and he was granted a new trial, which took place on October 26, 1981. This time, the trial occurred in Elkins, 
a town in Randolph County as a means to prevent any bias from locals of Monongalia County. A nine-woman, three-band jury heard the case, and after a three-hour deliberation, Eugene Paul Clawson was again convicted of first-degree murder, but this time with the recommendation of mercy. Clawson continues to maintain his innocence. In his last statement to the press, he exclaimed, I'm still not guilty. I didn't do it. Still sketchy. It's very sketchy. To make up all that, all out of his confession. As we mentioned before, there are several other suspects of note in the WV co-ed case and many who still believe Eugene Paul Clausen innocent, at least of these particular murders. We will only be touching on two of the most notable. However, if you want to pick up a copy of the WVU co-ed murders book by Jeffrey C. Fuller and Sarah James McLaughlin, they discuss the case in full detail and highlight many more potential links that were investigated over the years. There were also part of the podcast Appalachia Mysteria, Merritt and Karen, the WVU co-ed murders which has also been a great resource for all things regarding this case. I highly recommend you check them out if you want to learn more. The first person of interest is a man aptly named William Bernard Hacker. Hacker was a mine foreman with ties to the Weirton Mine. He grew up and spent many years in Fairmont, West Virginia, a town that is very close to Morgantown. In 1927, it is known that his first wife came up missing. When questioned by police, Hacker's two young children claimed, Daddy carried something out of the house this morning in a sheet. Hacker did time for his involvement in a double murder, which took place in a bar in Fairmont in 1952. Because of his expertise in the mines, he was set to work as a supervisor in the Moundsville State Penitentiary Mines. In 1964, he rescued a fellow worker in an accident, and his sentence was commuted as a result. In 1971, he was again convicted of the murder after the headless body of Herbert Coburn was discovered. Hacker was witnessed leaving the scene and was arrested on Christmas Day 1970 wearing long johns stained with Coburn's blood. Due to the nature of the crime, he was questioned in regards to involvement with the WVU co-eds. Hacker refused to talk to the West Virginia State Police when they initially questioned him about his involvement. However, it is known that several polygraphs were given to Hacker regarding the co-eds. The first was ruled inconclusive because of jackhammering that was occurring outside the police station when the polygraph was given. The result of the second, which was led by Preston Gooden, had never been made public. It was Gooden's belief that this lead should be pursued further. It's of my personal opinion that Hacker could be involved. The final person who could have potential ties to the co-ed case is a man by the name of John Brennan Crutchley, also known as the Vampire Rapist. Crutchley would have been 24 in 1970 and grew up in Pittsburgh near the West Virginia PA border. His mother was from Bridgeport, West Virginia, a town located only 40 miles from Morgantown. Crutchley is a convicted kidnapper and rapist who is suspected of murdering more than 30 women despite never convicted of murder charges. Crutchley's first victim disappeared in 1977, with his last offense occurring in 1985. Many of his murders took place in Pennsylvania, Florida, Maryland, and Illinois. Despite the fact that the murders of Merritt and Karen occurred before Crutchley began his killing spree, it isn't necessarily out of the question for him to have had a first victim or more that are unknown occurring prior to 1977. There are several similarities between the co-ed murders and Crutchley's later killings, which have led some to develop the theory of his involvement. 
Firstly, Crutchley's sister was known to have been attending WVU at the time in 1970. Likewise, his father had worked at the mine near where the bodies had been discovered. In blatant terms, Crutchley had ties to the area. The amount of blood or lack thereof is particularly interesting when considering Crutchley. After all, his nickname, the Vampire Rapist, is telling of some of his methods in the crimes he was known to have committed. For instance, Crutchley was known to drain large amounts of his victims' blood over time, killing them slowly. He also drank the blood of his victims as part of an erotic ceremony. That is sick. What if his victim had, like, diseases? I guess he just didn't care. Well, you know, back then there weren't a whole lot of diseases. Yes, you're right. Crutchley was also known to have driven a little white car in 1970, one that has been known to brag was nondescript and lacking in identifiable features. He likewise had a pattern of disposing of his victim's body in the woods. When he was ultimately arrested in 1985, authorities confiscated over 20 women's necklaces believed to have belonged to his victims. Remember, the necklaces belonging to both Merritt and Karen were reportedly missing. How did he find his victims? mostly from hitchhiking. He was also known to have dismembered several of his victims and had even intimated on numerous occasions to have killed numerous women by means of decapitation. I mean, I think he's a very viable suspect. He's one that Jeff Fuller with the podcast in the book brought up, and I thought he presented a very valid case. I don't think he is method enough to do what was done to Merritt and Karen. You're talking about Crutchley? Yes. Or Hacker. Crutchley. I just feel like Crutchley had one thing. I think there was just so much more to Merritt and Karen and like leaving the stuff behind. And I would think more about Hacker than I would Crutchley. So Crutchley's first known kill was in 1977, right? Yes. So I think maybe this could have, he could have heard about this and that gave him... But this was in 1970. This would have been seven years before. That's what I'm saying. He but heard about this, and then that gave him that inspiration. got him going. Yes, got him going. He he liked the fact that the heads were cut off, maybe or he there got was aroused by that. Yeah, there was something that was arousing for him. So, what do you think? Did Eugene Paul Clausen commit these heinous acts against Merritt Mallorick and Karen Farrell? Was it someone else? What are your thoughts on Hacker and Crutchley? I'm going to go ahead and open this up for commentary. This is the part of the podcast where we discuss theories and volley around ideas about the case. Ladies, who would like to begin? First of all, I think Clausen wanted attention. And maybe, truthfully, he was thinking that he would get transferred from Jersey down to West Virginia. He would get off in West Virginia because he didn't actually do it. And he would not be in prison anymore, which I don't know why he thinks that New Jersey wouldn't catch up to his butt and take him back up there. But I kind of feel like hackers more are person. That's always been my thought. Clausen to me just doesn't. He's just too crazy. There's so many hard facts though. Yeah, but he also could have read it in that detective magazine. The press put out so much on this case that it's like he honestly could have. Think about it. There's five years difference. He could have read so much on it. And well, and I mean, you think about the letters and the triangle. You know, I mean, all that's just craziness. Yeah. It basically triangle is like a psychic who is channeling and they're like, okay, well, this is where the bodies are in a wooded area south of Morgantown, which they were partially right, but they only get a piece of the puzzle if they are legit. Truly. Yeah. yeah. 
we need their bodies and their clothing. We need their heads. And their heads. That would work too. Yes, I'm anxious to find those heads. I don't want to go looking for them, but I hope somebody There's finds somebody. them. Yeah. Probably down that mine shaft. I can't imagine that somebody would have taken the heads far from where the bodies were. You know what I mean? Well, if it were up to Clawson, he stuck him in the car in an old rag and... Had sex with him. Had sex with him and then threw him in a crevice. And that was way more than I could have ever imagined that somebody would do with someone's heads. So if it was not him and it was someone else... I feel like he gave who way knows? too many details. Like, who way knows? Way too many. Like, what's the person going to put their heads under their armpits and just carry them? Like footballs? With the blood dripping everywhere. Ooh, that sounds like a, a good... Or, hang, or other hair. Oh, my God. That sounds like... like that that is a good movie start right there. I was like, it sounds like Halloween. Like Michael Myers with his little machete. Oh, Michael or would no, never... no, not Michael Myers. Jason Voorhees. Yeah, now Jason would hold on to something, but Michael would not. He just would throw it aside and keep going. Didn't Jason Voorhees have his mother's head on a... Yes. In, like, one of the later ones? Like on, a, on, a on a stick. Altar? On an altar? Yeah, on a stick, on an altar. Yes, he did. It has been 52 years since the murders of Merritt Malarick and Karen Farrell, and to some, their case is still believed to be cold. If you or anyone you know has any information regarding the murders of Karen Farrell and Merritt Malarick, please contact Crime Stoppers at 304-255-STOP. You are able to remain anonymous and are not required to give your name. We are a very interactive group. Check out our blog that's been posted up on our website, www.coldcasecrewwv.com. Here we post pictures, newspaper clippings, and information pertaining to the case. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to the Cold Case Crew. Share, share, share. Thank you everyone so much for listening. This wraps up season one for the Cold Case Crew, but don't worry. We'll be back on October 5th, 2022 with our season two premiere episode, The Tragic Murder of Evelyn Shrewsbury. You can also catch us over on our Patreon where we post episodes bi-weekly for our blind reaction series starting at the $5 level. Do you have a case that you are interested in hearing about on our podcast? Send us an email at coldcasecrew00 at gmail.com and let us know who you would like to hear about next what's your theory 